Hey, everybody. Welcome to another episode of Let's Read the Bible. I'm Evan. And I'm Aaron. And this is a podcast where we read through the Bible together every year and talk about what we learned along the way. If you would like to follow along, you can download the YouVersion Bible app and look up the Grove Church in Marysville, Washington. You can find our plan there. And we also have that plan available on our website, grove.church. And if you are joining us for the first time today, you can jump in with the plan on day 204. We are over 200. Incredible. We're almost at the end of the year, which is weird to think about. Uh, But as you're reading along or listening along uh, with us on this podcast journey, we would love to take time to answer any questions that may arise in your beautiful brains. Uh, And there's three ways to send us those questions. One is an email. The email address is info at grove.church. Make sure to put in the subject line a podcast question, or you you can direct message us on Facebook or Instagram. Our handles are the Grove CH. Uh, so you can DM us there. We get those questions and we will take time as much as we can week over week to answer all your wonderful questions. All right. Well, this week we are in Isaiah for a, a lot of it. That's a lot for of sure. It, yes. We wrap uh, up the book of Isaiah this week. Yeah, I'm fully in Isaiah. Aaron, I think you, you jump into Jeremiah for a little bit. I do Is jump that... into the first two chapters of Jeremiah. Ooh, today. There you go. All right. So we're in major, we're, this is major prophet country today. Yep. So there you yep. go. It's coming. Um, all right. So Hezekiah. Does he die? Does he die this week, or are we still? I don't know. What do you? Are think? we still locked in? No, Hezekiah, Hezekiah does die, as well as his two sons. Oh, okay. They, oh, so we'll, we will be ranking some kings. Three kings today. Actually. That's exciting. I All guess right. this week. Sorry, this week. Boom. All right. Well, uh, we are going to kick off in Isaiah chapter forty. And this is in the aftermath of the foretold destruction of Jerusalem, uh, and yet, even in the midst of that, there are some interesting words of comfort coming even in the midst of disaster. Uh, Some words that will come up again much later. So see if any of these sound familiar to you. Uh, This is starting in verse 1 of Isaiah chapter 40. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended and her iniquity is pardoned, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. A voice cries in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up, and every mountain shall be made low, and the uneven ground shall become level, and the rough places a plain, and the glory of the Lord shall be revealed, and all flesh shall see it together, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. A voice says, Cry, and I said, What shall I cry? All flesh is grass, and all its beauty is like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flower fades. When the breath of the Lord blows on it, surely the people are grass. The grass withers, the flower fades but the word of our God will stand forever. Amen. So there's a few, yeah, that's a great (laughs) verse. So yeah, there's a few, there's three things that stood out to me. Uh, Number one, I love the idea of speak tenderly to to Jerusalem, that her warfare is ended, her iniquity is pardoned. Essentially what it's talking about the feeling of peace after they've been conquered by the Babylonians, which is kind of interesting to think about that way as it's almost like, hey, we're going off into exile but the war is over. Like the, the violence is over. Uh, unless you're Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, then you have the fiery furnace thing. But other than those three, like the war uh, is over. So there's a peace that comes after that. The second thing, uh, if you've heard, if you heard a voice cries in the wilderness, uh, prepare the way of the Lord, make straight the desert, hi- make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Uh, that is. John the Baptist. So we're told uh, that that verse is actually kind of hinting towards him. So when we get to the gospels, we'll see that used. Uh, And then finally, as Aaron kind of said, amen at the end, I just love the line of the grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. It's a great reminder. And I love just, you know, the poetic way that it's phrased as well. Uh, As the chapter continues, it extols the greatness of God and how he will watch over his people like a shepherd watches over his sheep. Uh, In this time of fear, Yahweh shows that he will take care of his people. So again, Isaiah is this really interesting uh, combination of foretelling the coming doom of Jerusalem and yet at the same time also promising protection for God's people, uh, which when we get later into some of the prophets, like when we get into Jeremiah, there's some of that, like Jeremiah 29, 11 is the famous one, uh, but there's a lot more just kind of hopelessness in Jeremiah uh, as opposed to Isaiah. Uh, And when we get to chapter 41, it continues on with this same theme, starting out with reminding the coastal cities not to be afraid, which I thought was kind of interesting to single them out. Um, In my head, and I don't know if this is true or not, but I feel like the coastal cities would have been harder to defend. Because remember, Jerusalem is built on a hill. So any army assaulting it is going to, A, they're going to have to deal with all the walls, but B, 
they're going to be moving uphill with the people in Jerusalem being able to fire down from the wall. So obviously that's a very defensible position. Uh, when you're on the coastal plains, you are most likely not being able to build your city on a hill. You're by, by necessity, you're going to be, I shouldn't say by necessity because there's cliffs and things, but usually that means you're going to be closer uh, to sea level and therefore a little bit easier to take out. But I mean, who knows? That's just kind of what popped into my head. Uh, and then we get these verses, which should sound familiar to us. But you, O Israel, my servant, Jacob, whom I have chosen, the offspring of Abraham, my friend, you whom I took from the ends of the earth and called you its farthest and called you from its farthest corners, saying to you, You are my servant, I have chosen you and not cast you off. Fear not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you, I will help you, and I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. Uh, and all I could think of there was Joshua, because again, it just mm-hmm. kind of bring it, do not be dismayed, fear not, for I am with you. Uh, it, it's interesting to me that in the book of Joshua, God is strengthening Joshua and telling the people of Israel that, hey, as you go to conquer, I will be with you. And then in this, it's actually saying, as you are being conquered, I am with you. So kind of a really interesting flip of the perspective there. Uh, In the back half of chapter 41, God also makes it clear that he is above all of the false gods and the idols of the world. Uh, Those who trust in them will be dismayed by God's wrath. And we are told at the end of the chapter that these idols are nothing more than a delusion and an empty wind, which I love. I I, I love the wind metaphors in the Bible all the time where it's just talking about where they're coming from. Uh, But basically what it's saying is the idols... You know, they might seem like something, but in the end, it's just, it's nothing. It's complete nothingness. It's vanity, striving after the wind, as uh, the author of Ecclesiastes might say. Uh, Chapter 42 gives us the first servant song in Isaiah. Uh, And these are four songs that we'll be talking about today, and they all find their fulfillment in Jesus. Uh, And so with most of them, I'm just going to pick out some parts and I'll read them and you'll be like, hey, wait wait a second. (laughs) That sounds familiar. I know that. Uh, So this is verses six to nine of Psalm, or sorry, of Isaiah 42. I am the Lord. I have called you in righteousness. I will take you by hand and keep you. I will give you as a covenant for the people, a light to the nations, to open the eyes of the blind, to bring out the prisoners from the dungeons, from the prison to those those who sit in darkness. I am the Lord. That is my name. My glory I give to no other, nor my praise to carved idols. Behold, the former things have come to pass and the new things I now declare before they spring forth. I tell you of them. Uh, the couple things that stood out to me there is, again, with John the Baptist, when he asked Jesus, basically paraphrasing, hey, how's it going out there? Uh, Jesus quotes back this passage from Isaiah. However, he excludes uh, the part about the prisoners being set free, which is kind of a, which is kind of a bummer for him. Uh, but also, uh, I love this. I will give you as a covenant for the people, a light to the nations. And that's very much getting at the idea that Jesus is the sacrificial lamb of the new covenant of the final covenant. And that this is for all the nations. This is hope for all of the nations of the world, not just for Israel, Um, which again, the vast majority of the Old Testament or the Old Covenant is for the nation of Israel. That's who it's concerned with. When we get into the New Testament and the New Covenant, we're going to see that expand past the nation of Israel, which honestly, thank goodness, because most of us here in the the US are Gentiles. So uh, if it wasn't for that, we would be in a lot of trouble. Uh, As the chapter continues, the people of Israel are told, are told to sing new songs to the Lord in response to this, and the chapter ends with the section reprimanding the Israelites for having the truth of God in front of them and yet not seeing it or hearing it. And as I was reading this passage, I couldn't help but think of Isaiah's call. Remember, you know, there's the famous, we always end on the line where God says, who will go for us? And Isaiah says, here I am, Lord, send me. And then we cut it off, but we don't read the next verse, which yeah. is, uh, yeah, you're going to go and you're going to preach and they're not going to see you and they're not going to hear you. Uh, but, yeah, we're getting at that right there, right? God is reprimanding the people of Israel for for doing that, for being that way. Chapter 43 begins with a reminder that Yahweh is the only savior of Israel, uh, which is an important reminder that the people of Israel keep forgetting. So remember, whether it's other gods, famously, you know, it starts off early when like they get out of the, they get out of Egypt, they go cross the Red Sea and they're like, well, God's abandoned us. So why don't we worship this golden calf instead? Um, And today there's still idolatry, but it's also the temptation to make foreign alliances. It's this idea that, okay, well, God might not protect us. So why don't we trust in Egypt to protect, to protect us from Assyria or Babylon, which obviously 
It's not going to go very well for them. <laughs> uh, and the point, that what? point is driven home at the end of the chapter where God reprimands his people for not calling out to him and offering sacrifice. So in other words, they're afraid, they're wanting deliverance. And he's like, why aren't you, why aren't you asking me? <laughs> like, I, I'm here. I'm the one true God. Uh, that sounded a little bit blasphemous. I'm speaking from God's perspective there. Uh, and yet the people of Israel keep calling out to idols instead. Uh, chapter 44 begins with reassuring Israel that they are God's chosen and will not be forgotten. As it continues on, you can see that God is angry with the worship of the other gods and shows how the worship of idols is folly and these gods will not save their people. However, the final section focuses on the coming redemption of God's people. And this is kind of a theme of Isaiah where the judgment is foretold and we're kind of, and the people of Israel kind of warn like, hey, there's going to be some rough times in coming, but a, a a big part of Isaiah is concerned with hope, is concerned with the fact that God is not abandoning his people uh, and, and talking about the, kind of the remnant that will be there after the exile or in the post-exilic period. Uh, chapter 45, I think is fascinating. And it, it, it looks forward to the moment that Israel will be restored from the exile. Uh, but it even names the king who will do this. Mm-hmm. And that's Cyrus. This is one of the few times in the Bible we actually see that, which you, cause usually I think God likes to keep it vague uh, so that when it's fulfilled, people are kind of like, oh, well, that's cool. But you don't have that. You don't have that temptation of saying like, maybe, uh, well, this is why it was fulfilled because it was written. And so obviously someone just tried to make it seem like that was there. Uh, luckily, no one has to worry about the Persians studying the Hebrew scriptures probably. So uh, you can just be as clear as you want. I don't know if that's actually what's going on here, but that's kind of what makes me think that's what it makes me think of. Uh, but yeah, Cyrus the Great, King of Persia is foretold. And he is the, spoiler alert listeners, but he is the king who allows the Jews after 70 years that they spend in exile, uh, first under Zerubbabel and then under Ezra and Nehemiah. Uh, There's massive groups of Jews that are able to return to Jerusalem. They rebuild the walls, rebuild the temple, all those things. And so they're being told about this and all the way in the book of Isaiah, which is taking place uh, a little over a century beforehand. So that's pretty cool. Uh, chapter, and then, sorry, uh, this passage shows how God will even use those who do not worship him for his purpose. And so this is Isaiah chapter 45. It says, for the sake of my servant, Jacob, and for Israel, my chosen, I call you by name. This is referring to Cyrus. Uh, I name you though you do not know me. I am the Lord and there is no other beside me. There is no God. I equip you though you do not know me that people may know from the rising of the sun and from the West that there is none beside me. I am the Lord and there is no other. I form light and create darkness. I make well-being and create calamity. I am the Lord who does all these things. And so the point is driven home that it is going to be Cyrus who is going to be the tool of God in this moment, who's going to make this happen. And yet he's making this very clear. He is the one orchestrating it. And I think it's interesting too, because sometimes like we, we've seen this theme before of God uses people who are, who aren't worshipers of him to fulfill his purposes. I think one of the most famous ones is in Habakkuk, which we haven't gotten to yet, but I, I love that book as well. Um, but it's all about how God is using the Babylonians to bring wrath and to bring his wrath upon them. And Habakkuk's whole deal is like, well, the, the, the Babylonians suck too. Why are you favoring them? And God's like, oh, don't worry. They're going to get theirs get as well. Theirs. Yep. Uh, Cyrus is one of the ones where it just seems like, like when you read the accounts, he's just a good guy. <laughs> like Cyrus is kind of like, he's not, he's not a Yahweh worshiper. Um, Oh, maybe, I don't know. Maybe he has a change of heart at some point. I don't know. Probably not. Um, but he's, he's all around, like he's not this evil king who's just going through and being bloodthirsty and God forces him into it. It's, it seems like he's legitimately trying to do right by this people group that he's ruling over. Um, and the Persian kings, and uh, this is a whole side thing, but the Persian the Persian Empire gets kind of a bad rap because I think we view history through the lens of the Greeks. And so like the Persians are kind of like the, the evil empire. But like when you actually read about them, like they were pretty chill, <laughs> like especially when you consider like obviously by today's, today's standards, any nation is going to be brutal uh, by the standards of the day the Persians were actually pretty, they were pretty all right. So, you know, for whatever that, for whatever that's worth, for those of you Persians listening today, I respect (laughs) your ancient empire. So uh, as we continue on, we learned that uh, while Cyrus is Yahweh's servant, it is clear that God is the only savior of Israel. And it's a point that is driven home throughout. It's very long passages Mm -hmm. driven home all throughout. Uh, Chapter 46, once again, drives home that Yahweh is the one true God and that the false gods of Babylon will fall. Uh, And if you're thinking to yourself, boy, he seems to repeat that a lot. Yeah. You know, maybe maybe it's something the people of Israel needed to hear uh, again and again. 
Uh, and, and still didn't fall through. Yeah, Israel, come on. Uh, in chapter 47, we see that not only will the gods of Babylon be humiliated, but so will the nation itself. Uh, and remember, Babylon is the greatest power in the in this area of the world right now. Uh, and yet, not long after they take Judah, they will be humiliated and they will fall. Uh, they And if, if, you, if you don't remember, remember Assyria is kind of the major power in Mesopotamia when they conquer Israel and almost immediately after they fall to Babylon and then Babylon becomes the major power in Mesopotamia. And then almost immediately after they take Judah, they fall to the Medes and the Persians and then the Medes and the Persians are kind of the great power uh, and they last for a while. And then eventually they're overthrown by uh, the Greeks or the Macedonians, but Alexander the Great, that whole thing. Uh, And then just like God is going to use Cyrus to accomplish his goals, we're reminded in chapter 47 that God is using the Babylonians to accomplish his purpose. Uh, chapter 48 begins with an interesting exploration of God's wrath being a refinement for Israel. And it says, for my name's sake, I defer my anger. For the sake of my praise, I restrain it for you that I may not cut you off. Behold, I have refined you, but not as silver. I have tried you in the furnace of affliction. For my own sake, for my own sake, I do it. For how should my name be profaned? My glory I will not give to another. Um, and so, A, I think oh, this is a theme that we're kind of uncomfortable with in modern Christianity. And I shouldn't say modern Christianity because that's a very broad term. But in the circles of Christianity that I'm a part of, I think sometimes we struggle with the idea that it is right and it is good um, that God does things for his glory. And I think sometimes we think of it as being prideful. Um, but no, God can't be prideful. And because prideful is having too high of an opinion of yourself, right? Uh, When you're the all-powerful creator of the universe, you can't have too high an opinion of yourself because you are the highest good. You are the highest thing. You are are above everything else. Um, And so for us, from looking from a purely human perspective, if I was completely motivated by my own glory, that would be wrong. Um, God being motivated for his own glory is not a bad thing. Um, and, And it is right for us to be motivated to bring glory to God as well. Well, but I think also like the the idea that God is motivated by his glory is not prideful because it's it, the glory of uh that God is is devoted to and and passionate about and committed to is is the redemption of his creation, is the redemption of your life and my life. And so it is it is and I think it's we got to be very careful when it comes to ascribing adjectives to God based upon our human limited understanding. Right. Because again, he even, I mean, he says it in Isaiah, like my ways are not your ways. My thoughts are not your thoughts. Like it is this tension of we at times will think we understand things that we can then attribute to a negative characteristic of who God is, but God in his holiness and his purity, he's not walking in pride. He's walking in the fulfillment and the full awareness of who he is in the full awareness of of the intention of creation. Um, and so I think there's a level of of depth there that we have a very hard time this side of eternity grasping mm-hmm. um, because we, we we miss the awe of God. We miss the the fear of God, if you will, um, and the, the magnitude of who he is. So you're right, absolutely right. Like God can't be considered prideful because he, I mean, for the lack of, he's, He's transcendent above pride and the concept of pride as we understand it. Mm-hmm. So, but yeah, there's a, there's a huge point there. No, there you go. I like it. I like it. Um, oh my gosh, I lost my place in the notes. Okay, we're here. we're back, listeners. We're back. <laughs> so the second <laughs> half the interruption. Yeah, no. The second half of the chapter sees God lament over the state of His people. And I, when I was reading this, it brought to mind uh, the famous passage in the Gospels. I don't remember which Gospel it's in. Uh, it might be in multiple, but where Jesus laments over Jerusalem. And he essentially says, like, I, I wish that I could gather you like a hen gathers her chicks. Like that, it's that picture. Um, it reminds me of this. This is Isaiah chapter 48, starting in verse 18. Oh, that you had paid attention to my commandments. Then your peace would have been like a river and your righteousness like the waves of the sea. Your offspring would have been like sand and your descendants like its grains. Their names would never be cut off or destroyed from before me. And it frames, it's, it's showing God's sorrow over the state of his people. Um, but it's also really interesting because it's showing that what's about to happen to Israel, and I guess at this point, it's to Judah, is the northern kingdom of Israel has already uh, received their consequences, but it's fully due, their, their coming judgment is fully due to the fact that they did not follow God's commands. And so it, it, it's, it's a particularly sad and somber look at the coming destruction of Jerusalem and the, and the temple and the exile. And there's an interesting... 
I don't know. I always, I think it was kind of inevitable just because of human nature, but I always, you know, I always wonder like, what would it have been like if there was more good Kings in Israel and they were actually able to worship. And you see like, even in like the midst of Rome and all these nations moving forward, that there's this little pocket that God constantly protects. Like that would have been really cool. Uh, chapter 49 is our second servant song. Uh, and that, like I said, here's just a couple of verses that really stood out to me. Uh, listen to me, O coastlands and give attention you peoples from afar the lord called me from the womb from the body of my mother he named my name uh which again thinking about jesus and his story right it's interesting that they only single out the mother here because obviously that's part of the story is that joseph is uh is a stepdad but he's not involved in the normal way that a dad would be um and so calling from the womb it reminds me of that passage where we see jesus and john the baptist meet in the womb uh and then also the fact that his name was chosen before anything from the body of my mother, he named me my name and Mary is told beforehand, this is what his name is going to be. Uh, verse six also says, he says, it is too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the, pres- uh, the preserved of Israel. I will make you as a light for the nations that my salvation may reach to the ends of the earth. Uh, which again, That's a thing that was not really understood by a lot of people when Jesus came, but you can kind of see through hindsight, oh, Jesus is bringing in salvation for the world, not just for uh, Israel. And I also think it's interesting to me too, because I think I've over the years, as I, especially with doing this podcast where we kind of are going in depth and reading through everything, I have a lot more sympathy for the first century Jews um, and how they misunderstood who Jesus was going to be. Because even when you read through the Old Testament, when it's talking about salvation, we read it through Christian eyes usually, but most of the time it's not referring to spiritual salvation yeah. in the afterlife. It's referring to Israel being yeah. saved, right? Physical deliverance. Yeah, exactly. And so I, I totally understand how uh, you would read these passages and what you would think of is, yeah, the warrior Messiah is going to bring salvation to Israel and then he's going to bring salvation to the rest of the world. And what you're thinking about there is, is conquest. Uh, but obviously we know that that is not what Jesus ends up doing. So kind of cool. Uh, the rest of the chapter looks forward to the coming peace that this servant or Messiah will usher in. Uh, chapter 50 is the third servant song. And this one focuses on the obedience of the coming Messiah and contrasts this with the current sin of Israel. I thought this verse is particularly poignant. It says, I gave my back to those who strike and my cheeks to those who pull out the beard. I hid not my face from disgrace and spitting. Uh, and I can't help but think Jesus uh, much. Yeah, I cannot help but think of Jesus' torture at the hands of the Romans in, in, when I read those verses. Uh, chapter 51 sees God giving comfort to the people of Jerusalem who have kept his law and earnestly seek him. It ends with this passage. Uh, Therefore, hear this, you who are afflicted, who are drunk, but not with wine. Thus says the Lord, so, sorry, thus says your Lord, the Lord, your God, who pleads the case of his people. Behold, I have taken from your hand the cup of staggering, the bowl of my wrath, you shall drink no more. I will put into your hand, uh, into the hand of your tormentors who have said to you, bow down that when we pass over and you have been, and you have made your back like the ground, like the street for them to pass over. Uh, and so again, it's just kind of talking about, there's going to be some really rough times and God's not sugarcoating that anywhere <laughs> in the prophets, but he's reminding them that they are his people and he will come back for them. Uh, Chapter 52 focuses on the coming salvation of the Lord. Israel is told that they were sold for nothing and will be be redeemed without money, Uh, which again, we can read that with the hindsight of the New Testament and be like, yep, yep, that's exactly what's going to happen here. Uh, This is also the chapter with the famous verse of how beautiful upon the mountain are the feet of those who bring good news. So if you've ever seen that before, or if you ever heard that before, that's where it's from. Uh, Verse 13 is the fourth and final servant song. And again, I'm just going to read uh, five verses here. These are pretty famous, or at least you're going to recognize parts of it. Uh, also, if you've ever seen Handel's Messiah, then- Do you mean chapter 53? Chapter 53? Did I say verse 53? Yeah. You oh. said verse 13. What an idiot. Uh, chapter 53, verses four through nine. Uh, Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our, our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray and we have turned every one of us to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed 
And he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth, like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like sheep, and like a sheep that before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for his generation, who, consid- who considered that he was cut off from the living, stricken for the transgression of my people. And they made his grave with the wicked, and with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence, and there was no deceit in his mouth. Uh, so I mean, yeah, that's going to be, I, so I reference Handel's Messiah. If you've ever watched that, I would recommend doing it once. Cause it's pretty cool, but honestly, I got really, really bored. <laughs> so it's, uh, <laughs> and I, I, I am a noted lover, lover of classical music and it kind of bored me a little bit, but, uh, this, that's saying something. I know it's, it's, it just, it repeats so much. Um, but it's a, the beginning of it is a bunch of passages from Isaiah talking about the coming Messiah. And this is one of the famous ones that it talks about here. Um, and we can see how all of this is fulfilled. There's some obvious ones. I also think it's cool that it says, and his grave was with the wicked and with a rich man in his death. Or in other words, uh, he is killed with the wicked, the two other thieves. And then where is Jesus buried? He's buried in the tomb of Joseph of Arimathea, who is a rich man who offers up a spot in his tomb for Christ. So pretty cool there. Uh, chapter 54, or sorry, chapters 54 and 55 show the eternal covenant of peace that is reminiscent of the covenant to Noah. Uh, so it, it's directly references that it's like in the time of Noah with the rainbow saying, I will not do this again. There's a, there's going to be a covenant similar to that. Um, and then even as God's wrath is being foretold, his compassion is on full display through this everlasting peace. Uh, in chapter 56, we see that his compassion is not only offered for Israel, but to the world. Uh, and then speaking to what will later be known as the God-fears in the New Testament. Uh, and if you don't remember, the God-fears are kind of just this this interesting group of people where they're not Jews, um, but they worship Yahweh. And so we're told that uh, like Timothy's mother belongs to this group. Uh, and there's a few... There's a few other people. Old Testament, there's really easy examples because you would get like Melchizedek and Job and uh, th- there's one other person, maybe King Lemuel from Proverbs. If, it's, if he's not a king of Israel, who knows who that guy was. Uh, but speaking to that group, this is what said in Isaiah, let not the foreigner who has joined himself to the Lord say, the Lord will surely separate me from his people. And let not the eunuch say, behold, I am a dry tree. Uh, for thus says the Lord to the eunuchs who keep my Sabbaths, who choose the things that please me and hold fast to my covenant, I will give in my house and within my walls a monument and name better than sons and daughters. I will give them an everlasting name that shall not be cut off. Uh, I should also mention this occurred to me as I was reading that it was, this would also very much apply to foreigners in Israel who became Jews. Uh, Ruth would be a great example mm-hmm. of that. And uh, Rahab would be another one where uh, they were not born Israelites, but they, they joined, they joined up, they joined the team as it were. Uh, finally, and I say finally, just because we're getting to the end of my readings today, but Aaron's still got a few here to do as well. Uh, at the tail end of 56, we begin reading the final section of my readings today, uh, where we see Israel is again condemned, including their hypocritical leaders and their rampant idolatry. And chapter 57 ends with a word of comfort for the contrite among Israel. Uh, again, this is not a full destruction of Israel, but this is a refining of God's people. And God is making a special allowance for for those people in Israel who earnestly do worship him and serve him and are sorry and repent of their sins, it's not going to be all bad. And we no. see, and I think I do love that when, as we read the old Testament, uh, it will not end on the hopeless note of the destruction of Jerusalem. <laughs> uh, we're going to get to Ezra and Nehemiah. And while things maybe weren't the way that they used to be, uh, it's still a really beautiful picture of God's grace and deliverance in the middle of that. Uh, all right. Well, before we get to Aaron's sections today, we do want to take a moment to say, hey, you know, if you haven't left us a uh, a five star review yet, actually, let me pause as well. Uh, if you read if you read my book, suffering, <laughs> suffering, and silence, uh, if you if you read it and liked it, also if you could leave a five star review on that, that's just a personal favor. But that would mean a lot to me. If Listen, you Evan, to this that. is not Evan's podcast. Okay? It's true. We don't need to talk about your stuff. I swear, I'm not gonna. I I I try not to plug it super often because that's you know that's obviously obnoxious. Just the last annoying. few weeks, yeah, because the book just, just released, just a little bit. Uh, but also for the podcast, if you could leave us a five-star review on whatever device you are listening on or whatever podcast app you use, uh, particularly Spotify and Apple Podcasts, those are the ones that kind of help it to get out there the most. And on Apple Podcasts, you can actually leave a written review. Uh, and if you leave one, you will we will read it on the air, just like we're doing for... Dude, this is the raddest name ever, Redacted Cowboy. Great name. Also, really touching review. When yeah, I read this that, is, yeah, I was this like, is wow. a really encouraging review. Um, and... 
And as pastors, like that's that's our main priority and profession here between Evan and I. Is we're, just, we're pastors. That's what we uh, do as God's call in our lives. And uh, so this was really cool. I just want to I want to read this in length because I think it's worth doing this. It says it's January January of this year. Uh, his title was the po- this podcast change, or maybe her title, but uh, the title is this podcast changed my life. Uh, January of this year, I gave my life to Christ. Uh, and I just want to stop and say right there, like, welcome to the family. Like, that is one of the best decisions you can ever make. Not not one uh, of. <laughs> that is the best decision you can ever make. Uh, yeah. Sorry, I'm just, I'm just teasing you. Yeah, I know, I know. Uh, but yeah, so the best decision you can ever make uh, is saying yes to Christ. And so um, I, I'm I'm thrilled that you're part of the family now. And and hopefully one day we'll, we'll meet again in eternity and you'll be able to tell me you're a redacted cowboy and I'll celebrate with you. Uh, but you said this, for the past six months, I've been reading a scripture and every day while working, listening to Evan and Aaron explain different parts of the Bible, this podcast gave me a love and a desire to learn about the Christian faith and has pushed me to study so that hopefully one day I too will be as knowledgeable as Evan. Um, I omitted myself from there, but he says as Aaron and Evan are. How, how dare you? Um, listening to this podcast is a great time. And even though they are in season five, they always manage to shed light on a new part of the scripture and the reading plan every season. This podcast truly is a blessing and text cannot explain how much it has taught me and helped me to grow in my faith. Thank you, Aaron. And thank you, Evan, for the work you do. Uh, And he says, P.S. Congratulations, uh, Evan, on becoming a father and becoming a a published author. Um, Self-published. (laughs) Self-published. Evan Evan is like being called a published author because he's self-published, but uh, one day a publishing company is going to pick it up and then it'll be a published author. It's going to be rad. One day. Uh, But he says this, I look forward to reading your book when it arrives. Uh, And so I I read all that in length because um, my heart is is I have grown to love God's word like crazy. Um, And it's something I enjoyed looking forward to every morning when I get to read it. And uh, just the simple fact that that same joy and passion and excitement is is coming alive in someone else. And many of our listeners, you've you've commented different things along the same lines. Um, it's just really encouraging. It's really a lot of fun to read, uh, and it's humbling to be a part of your journey of faith. Uh, and I'm thankful that it's been uh, an encouragement. It's been a challenge. Um, and, and as you continue to read, as you continue to grow and study God's word, you're going to be more knowledgeable than we are, because I didn't have someone I got to listen to to talk about the Bible. So you're already far, far beyond where I was. Uh, in my journey of faith. So, so great job. Thanks for leaving that review. Um, and I will say this, like uh, Evan is not going to be the guy that's going to want to plug his, his book every moment we get. We're not going to read your reviews on our podcast, unfortunately, uh, but it would be a great opportunity if you've not uh, purchased the book or maybe you're able to and want to, like I'll, I'll shamelessly plug for my friend. Uh, it's a book worth getting. And so I would love for you to, to make sure you pick that up if you haven't yet. It's called Suffering and Silence by Evan Westerfield. Uh, check it out on Amazon or anywhere other places it may be sold, but probably just Amazon. Oh, thank you. Uh, Isaiah, we're going to finish up the book of Isaiah today uh, and this week uh, today because I'm recording the podcast, but this week as you're reading through it. Uh, and Isaiah 58 continues to pick up much where 57 left off. Um, but you'll find in, in chapter 58 here, there's like this lament, this cry from God's people about God's lack of response when they fast. Uh, and so this is a pretty famous passage. If you've been in the church world for very long, when it comes to fasting, it talks about proper fasting, the proper motivation for fasting. Uh, and it really is a response to the lament of God's people uh, asking again, why they should fast. Uh, and this is, this is what God says in Isaiah 58. I said, isn't this the fast I choose? This is the words of God speaking, not the people of God complaining or wondering where God was in the midst of their fasting. Uh, he says, isn't this the fast I, I choose? To break the chain of wickedness, to untie the ropes of the, uh, of, of the yoke, to set the oppressed free and to tear off every yoke. Is it not to share your bread with the hungry, to bring the poor and homeless into your house, to clothe the naked when you see him and not to ignore your own flesh and blood? Then your light will appear like the dawn. Your recovery will come quickly. Your righteousness will go before you and the Lord's glory will be your rear guard. At that time, when you call, the Lord will answer. When you cry out, he will say, here I am. If you get rid of the yoke among you, the finger pointing and malicious speaking. And if you offer yourself to the hungry and satisfy the afflicted one, then your light will shine in darkness and your night will be like noonday. The Lord will always lead you, satisfy you in a parched land and strengthen your bones. You will be like a watered garden and like a spring whose water never runs dry. Some of you will rebuild the ancient ruins. You will restore the foundations laid long ago. You will be called the repairer of the broken walls, the restorer of the streets where people live. Um, And I just love that part in that picture. And the challenge it creates is the idea of fasting is 
is biblical, yes, but there's also the idea like it's not always selfishly motivated. It's it's for the redemption of mankind. It's for the humanity and the rebuilding of God's people. Uh, and so there's this this tension that exists where the people of God in this moment were complaining, God, why do we fast? We fast and you don't answer. And he, he in essence, just point blank calls out, your motivation for fasting is not in alignment with my will for fasting. This is the will that I have for fasting. Uh, and it's a really powerful passage if you stop and really kind of process through it. Um, the idea of what to pray for, the idea of what to seek God for, the idea of how to look for opportunities for God's kingdom to show up and be fulfilled on earth today uh, as as he intends and desires it to be. Uh, so I thought that was a really challenging and encouraging passage when it comes to fasting. Not many of us like fasting nowadays. Several of us do. Um but it's a hard discipline, but it's one that pr- produces a really great reward and a great return for the kingdom. Uh, chapter 59 continues this conversation uh, out of fasting about the path back to righteousness. Um, it hinges, but it hinges on this idea of the awareness of one's sinfulness. And then in response, God's sovereign's, sovereign grace, meaning his plan for redemption. Um, this chapter will again bring to focus um, not on God's ability, inability, but the people's sinful rebellion. Uh, and it just says this in verse, verses one and two of chapter 59. It says, indeed, the ar- Lord's arm is not too weak to serve and his ear is not too deaf to hear, but your iniquities are separating you from your God and your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not listen. Uh, I just think that's such a stark picture uh, for God's people as they're complaining, as they're calling out to God, say, well, why are you far off? Why are you not listening? Are you really able to save? And God's like, no, 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 I'm not too weak. I'm not too too deaf. Your iniquities are the ones separating you from God, which is true even of today. Like the idea of sinfulness is what separates us from God is a big a big thing to realize. Uh, chapter 60, we'll see this portion will, uh, will be a picture of the future Isaiah sees of the final glory of God's people in Zion. Um, and then where all the people are united in knowing the true God. It's this picture that he sees. It's a vision he sees. Chapter 61 is a Messiah reference. And I love reading these because I think it's really worth remembering uh, that Christ is not just the New Testament figure. Actually, all of the Old Testament. Christ is in the Old Testament. But you also see the pointing to the redemption and the provision of the Messiah. Uh, and so we see this in chapter 61. Uh, one through seven, it says, the spirit of the Lord is on me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. If you feel like you've heard that somewhere before, that's because these, this is the passage Jesus quotes when he's standing before in the synagogue as a young kid, uh, as a young young man. He, he stands and he, he is handed a scroll of Isaiah chapter 61. He reads this and as if he fulfills it. And Evan, you already kind of alluded to it. Um, this idea that Jesus is then identifying as he is the fulfillment of this Old Testament prophecy in chapter 61 there. Uh, Chapter 62, we'll see it continues the theme of the transformation of God's people, uh, where in essence the picture is from shame that will rise up in glory because of Yahweh. Chapter 63 provides a comforting picture of God's people because of God's victory over evil. In essence, this picture in chapter 63 is, really gives the God, it should give, it's intended to give God's people the comfort knowing that God is all powerful. God is the one who triumphs. God over has, has victory and will have victory over evil in the days and years to come. Uh, and then we'll see in chapter, in verse 15, sorry, all the way through chapter 64 is this prayer that actually Isaiah is told to teach uh, God's people to pray and asking for God's power and mercy to be demonstrated. Um, and so it's it's this teaching moment where Isaiah then walks them through a prayer and, and in essence helps them learn, this is how you pray in seeking God's power and, and mercy to be demonstrated before you. Uh, and then chapter 65, we see God's response to his people. So he teaches them through Isaiah to pray, and then he responds. Um, and you find, I mean, I'm going to read this, and it kind of won't seem this way at first, um, which is why I want to read it. But really in this chapter, we're going to see this eagerness of God and his desire for to fulfill and bring their eternal joy, God's people's eternal joy. There's an eagerness that God has, um, but it's it's thwarted at times, it's prevented or hindered at times because of sinfulness and rebellion, which again, the bulk of Isaiah is, is drawing to attention Israel's rebellion, Israel's sinfulness, and that which separates them from God, and then the incoming uh, wrath and judgment being poured out. But this is what it says. This is a picture of God's eagerness. It says this, Um, In verses one through eight, it says, I was sought by those who did not ask. I was found by those who did not seek me. I said, here I am, here I am to a nation that did not call on my name. 
And it's, it's, you get in this moment, this picture that God is anticipating and waiting for his people to call out to him, anticipating and waiting for his people to ask for him, for his people to seek him. Um, He says, I spread my hands out all day long to a rebellious people who walk in the path that is not good, following their own thoughts. And it's literally, it's like, hello, I'm right here. Are you not seeing me? Are you not paying attention? And it's just heads down, walking past, ignoring God, not interested in seeing him. Uh, And it says this in verse three. So it kind of turns negative here, but you just see this like angst in God where he wants to bring provision and redemption to his people if they just stop and turn to him. I mean, we, we, we read it. Uh, if my people are called by my name, I can't remember the passage right off the top of my head. Uh, will humble themselves and praise it. Jeremiah. Uh, I don't remember. Ah, anyway. uh, shoot. Uh, I forget. I literally was just going to use this passage recently in, in a prayer we had in a moment on, on our gatherings, but, uh, but you just have this moment. It's like, just stop and look, I'm right here. Um, and it says this in verse three, these people continually anger me to my face sacrificing at gardens, burning incense on bricks, sitting among the graves, spending nights in secret places, eating the meat of pigs and putting polluted broths in their bowls. They say, keep to yourself. Don't come near near me. I am too holy for you, Uh, which is ironic because it's actually the opposite. God is too holy for them and they're rebellious, but they're too prideful. It says, these practices are smoke in my nostrils, a fire that burns all day long. Look, it is written in front of me. I will not keep silent, but I will repay. I will repay them fully for your iniquities and the iniquities of your fathers together, says the Lord, because they burned incense on the mountains and reproached me on the hills. I will reward them fully for their former deeds. The Lord says this, as the new wine is found in a bunch of grapes and one says, don't destroy it for there's some good in it. So I will act because of my servants and not destroy them all. And so you see this, this honest, transparent moment where God is so frustrated by the rebellion of his people, but he is also understanding and sees the future glimpse of a remnant that God is going to hold tightly to and restore back to his people, which is also becoming uh, a foretelling of the books of Nehemiah and the books of Ezra, where you see God rebuilding his temple and the city gates and all that. Uh, so then you see chapter 66, which is the final statement uh, from the par- prophet Isaiah, which is the last chapter in the book. It will foretell the future of true worship now and forevermore. Uh, and while the worship now has been detestable, a time is coming when true worship will happen, true falsehood would be judged, and God will be honored forever. Uh, you get this kind of allusion to John chapter 4, where Jesus is interacting with the Samaritan woman at the well where he says the time is now coming and is now here when true worshipers will worship the Lord in spirit and in truth. So you get this kind of fulfillment again in the Messiah, in Jesus, about the true worship, but it hinges on on Jesus himself. Uh, But you see this, I'm going to read the the first five verses of chapter 66, because it's always good to end uh, and read the last, some of the last of the prophet's words. Uh, It says, this is what the Lord says, heaven is my throne, the earth is my footstool. Where could you possibly build the house for me? And where would my resting place be? My hand made all these things, so they all came into being. This is the Lord's declaration. I will look favorably favorably on this kind of person, one who is humble, submissive in spirit, and trembles at my word. One person slaughters an ox, another person kills another kills a person. One person sacrifices a lamb, another breaks a dog's neck. One person offers a grain offering, another offers pig's blood. One person offers incense, another praises an idol. All these have chosen their ways and delight in their important practices. So I will choose their punishment and I will bring on them what they dread because I called and no one answered. I spoke and they did not listen. They did what was evil in my sight and chose what I did not delight in. You who tremble at his word, hear the word of the Lord. You brothers who hate and exclude you for my name's sake have said that the Lord be glorified so that you, so that we can see your joy, but they will be put to shame. And Isaiah, towards the end of Isaiah, you get these hope-filled moments and you get these encouraging moments like, okay, the future is going to be a restoration of the remnant. There's going to be hope coming. But you also see this, this coming disappointment that has been building in this reality of like God's judgment is on its way. And as much as God has tried to relent and to be patient and to be gracious, God's people continue to reject, continue to ignore, and continue to walk in their own ways. And, and you're kind of seeing this come to a head where um, even as we shift into Jeremiah in just a little bit, you'll see that it's coming into a season where Jer- Judah is about to be done. The kingdom of Judah is about to fall and exile is about to happen. And there's this journey of wrath against sin and rebellion that God pours out. 
because his people have not been faithful. Um, so Isaiah wraps up um, in the book of Isaiah in chapter 66 there. And then we will shift into 2 Kings 20 and 21, as well as 2 Chronicles 32, 32 33. It's been so long. I know. <laughs> since we've been there. Dude, it told me. It was like, well, wait, wow. Um, so, but this just tells the death of Hezekiah. Uh, so we've spent a lot of time in Hezekiah. Then we, uh, because Isaiah was a prophet during Hezekiah's reign, we wrapped up Isaiah. I think I said Isaiah. And so then Hezekiah chapter, here we are. We see the, the death of his life. Um, we see he is laid with the sons of David, um, that he's mourned by all of Jerusalem and they honored him in his death. Um, well, I would hope so. I would hope so too, right? Uh, Second Chronicle or Second Kings twenty-one one through nine, and Second Chronicles thirty-three one through nine. Again, remember as we're reading through this plan, we're reading the the chronological events in order. So we're jumping from Second Kings and Second Chronicles right now. We did that a lot previously. We jumped in Second Kings, Isaiah, and Chronicles because they all overlap the historical account of Hezekiah coming to reign and all that. So you're kind of paralleling these things, uh, these two stories together. Uh, but so the both accounts here. Tell of Hezekiah's son Manasseh, who rises as king. Um, he didn't follow in his father's footsteps. To uh, say the least. <laughs> I, I just said it this way. He evil. Uh, he rebuilt the high places. That, and this is like heartbreaking to read again. Like he rebuilt the high places that his father destroyed. Um, he made altars and tobales and asherahs. Um, he sacrificed his sons in fire. He practiced divination and sorcery. And in the words of Evan, he's just the worst. Yeah, Manasseh's no bueno. Uh then we see more of his story, 2 Chronicles 21, 10 through 17, or 2 Kings, sorry, and then 2 Chronicles 33, 10 through 19. Uh, it, God then reveals to uh, the servants and the leaderships, uh, leadership of uh, Manasseh that he's going to bring judgment and wrath uh, because of Manasseh's leadership. Uh, and then it also hints at and highlights Manasseh's death. But Second Chronicles highlight has this moment for Manasseh that is interesting to me. Uh, and it says this in chapter two, and I'm just going to read verses 10 through 17. Uh, it says, the Lord spoke to Manasseh and his people, but they did not listen. So he brought against them the military commanders of the king of Assyria. They captured Manasseh with hooks, which that doesn't feel good. Yeah. Sound good. They bound him with bronze shackles and took him to Babylon. When he was in distress, he sought the favor of the Lord, his God, and earnestly humbled himself before the God of his ancestors. He prayed to him and the Lord was receptive to his prayer. He granted his request and brought him back to Jerusalem, to his kingdom. So Manasseh came to know that the Lord is God. After this, he built the outer wall of the city of David from west of Gihon in the valley to the entrance of the fish gate. He brought it around to the Ophel and he heightened it considerably. He also placed military commanders in all the fortified cities of Jerusalem. He removed the foreign gods and idol and the idol from the Lord's temple, along with all the altars that he had built on the mountain of the Lord's temple and in Jerusalem, and he threw them outside the city. He built the altar of the Lord and offered fellowship and thank offerings on it. Then he told Judah to serve the Lord, the God of Israel. I'm going to stop for a minute uh, because all of a sudden there's this moment that we don't see in Second Kings that Manasseh comes to a moment of distress and, and calls out to God and God hears him, even though he is the absolute worst of the kings that we have experienced up to this point. He has this redemptive moment and he fortifies the city, which that in essence just shores up and shows that he is focusing on reestablishing the might, the power, the, the protection of God's city. He's leading and protecting God's, he's stewarding in essence, the kingdom of God uh, in, in the city of Jerusalem is what I mean by that. Uh, and so then he has these moments where he tears down some of the, the, the altars that he built. He throws them outside the city. Then he, he and I, the line that he says, so Manasseh came to know that the Lord is God, I think is poignant. Um, and so then he, he told all of Judah to serve the Lord. And then we get this verse in verse 17, which is where I'll, I'll wrap up before we jump into more of Kings and Chronicles. It says, however, the people still practiced or still sacrificed at the high places, but only to the Lord, their God, which again is, is so interesting, which means Baal and Asherah were no longer gods they were worshiping by sacrificing to because of Manasseh's leadership. Even though Manasseh led them that way again, he was able to then turn and thwart a little bit of that. Now, whether they, it's, it's not entirely a good thing to sacrifice on the high places, even if it is the Lord God, but it was an interesting point that I think will help provide us with some of our rankings a little bit later. But it was interesting and curious because Manasseh is one of the worst kings in all of, of the history of of Israel. And it's Judah. such a it's such a complicated legacy. But we'll talk that about that later. Uh, Second Kings, 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 Second Kings twenty one eighteen, as well as Second Chronicles thirty three twenty, are parallel passages that talks about Manasseh's death 
and he's buried in his own house, so he's not even buried with the kings of David. Um, I mean, that parallels is, his death. Yeah, he doesn't really deserve. The, it's the true. It's with very the kings true. Of David. Hezekiah was buried with the kings of, with the house of David. As by the he, way, if I didn't sh- say that, as he should have been. Second uh, Kings twenty one nineteen to twenty six, as well as Second Chronicles, there are parallel passages as well. Uh, but it's, they're both short accounts of the son of uh, Manasseh named Ammon, who reigned two years. He did what was evil, followed the early practice of his father. Uh, he ends up getting killed by his servants. And then it says that the common people killed the servants of Ammon who killed Ammon, uh, which was interesting. Just and, everyone's dying. There. It's so true. So it's, it's just a weird little two-year stint. Uh, and then in chapter or Second Kings chapter 22, 1 through 2, and Second Chronicles 34, 1 through 7, we're introduced to the next king. Uh, this is the son of Ammon. His name is Josiah. Whoa. Uh, and he's eight years old at the time of reigning when the people put him in, uh, in the kingship. And he ends up reigning for 31 years, which is a pretty significant time. He starts off great and initiates a reform of all of Israel. Uh, and I thought it'd be fitting to read Second Chronicles, the passage here uh, as we are introduced to Josiah. And then we've got two more chapters where we are introduced to the prophet Jeremiah after this. So we're almost done with this episode, uh, but here's what it says about Josiah. Chapter 34 of 2 Chronicles 1-7, through seven, it says, Josiah was eight years old when he became king, and he reigned 31 years in Jerusalem. He did what was right in the Lord's sight and walked in the ways of his ancestor David. So not even Hezekiah, but David. Good man. Uh, he did not turn aside to the right or left, which is a significant statement. I don't remember if that's in any of the other kings. Um, uh, I'd have to look at that. Yeah, I'm not sure. But it was, a, that's, I mean, that's a very strong statement. Um, in the eighth year, verse three says, in the eighth year of his reign, he, while he was still a youth, Josiah began to seek the God of his ancestor, David. And in the 12th year, he began to cleanse Judah and Jerusalem of the high places, the Asherah poles, the carved images, and the cast images. So he took a chunk of time to learn about what God intended, to learn from his ancestor, David, which is, again, another powerful moment. In this eight-year-old, now 12-year-old uh, reign rulership. I've got, that's the way I say it. Sorry, Kathy, if I missed up, said that word. Um, she loves it when I call her out on the podcast. True. So, uh, verse 4 says, In the presence of the altars of the Baals were torn down. He chopped down the shrines that were above them. He shattered the Asherah poles, the carved images. I, maybe I just read that. Crushed them into dust, scattered them over the graves of those who had sacrificed to them. He burned the bones of the priests on the altars, so he cleansed Judah and Jerusalem. Love that little detail there. Yep. He did the same in the cities of Manasseh, Ephraim, and Simeon, and as far as Naphtali on their surrounding mountain shrines. He tore down the altars, he smashed the Asherah poles and carved images to powder. He chopped down the shrines and all throughout the land of Israel and returned to Jerusalem. And that is our introduction that we get to Josiah. There's more to come in the next week or two, which are going to be exciting because I think Josiah is a really fun one to read. Um, But then we kind of take a pivot and are introduced to the prophet Jeremiah. Uh, to give you a quick overview of the prophet Jeremiah, he was a priest in Anathoth. Uh, he didn't marry, which I actually forgot about this. He didn't marry or have any kids because at God's command, there was impending judgment that would come upon the next generation. So he, di- he didn't want to have kids and didn't have kids because yeah. he didn't want to deal with that. Uh, he was a contemporary of Habakkuk and possibly Obadiah. Uh, and so we we see and we'll see some overlap, obviously, as we get further into Jeremiah, but he is the prophet that is arising as Josiah is king. He's during the, the reign of Josiah. Um, and there's a significant thing, and this is more of a, like an outline structural thing, uh, but there's a statement made three times. Uh, it talks about the last days or in the, in the sorry, the fourth year of King Jehoiakim. Uh, and it kind of breaks the writings down into three different sections, if you will, is kind of how I review it. Um, and this is a CSB Bible, study Bible breakdown. It's not necessarily the ESV. I actually didn't compare ESVs. Um, but you'll see the first two, the first section is from chapter 2 to 24, which is detailing Jeremiah's faithfulness to carry out God's commission. You'll see chapter 25 to 35 talks about the fierce opposition Jeremiah has in doing what God has called him to. And then we see in chapter 36 to 45, the collapse of Jer- Judah. So today, uh, for the as we wrap up this week's reading, we're only covering two chapters or I guess a chapter and a half. Uh, and so in Jeremiah chapter one, it's the introduction and call um, where we get this in verses four through 10. Uh, it's the call of Jeremiah. It says, the word of the Lord came to me. I chose you before I formed you. Many of you may know this verse, these verses, because they're fairly popular in the in the Christian worldview or the Christian world. Um, worldview, that's weird. Uh, chapter, verse five says, I chose you before I formed you in the womb. I set you apart before you were born. I appointed you a prophet to the nations. But I protested, oh no, Lord God, look, I don't know how to speak since I'm only a youth. Then the Lord said to me, don't say I'm only a youth. 
for you too, or for you will go to everyone I send you to and speak whatever I tell you. Don't be afraid of anyone, for I will be with you to rescue you. This is the Lord's declaration. Now I'm gonna be I'm gonna stop stop for a second. To be told that he doesn't need to be afraid of everyone and he will be re- and God will rescue you. Those are kind of scary things to think about. Mm-hmm. And as I look at Jeremiah's life, it's absolutely like, yep, so true, because the opposition is ridiculous. Um, and nobody listens to Jeremiah either, so it's really fun. That's kind of the case of, unfortunately, pretty much all the prophets until you get to the post-exilic ones. The story is kind of, and 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 no one listened to them. Yep, yep. Uh, verse 9 says, then the Lord reached out his hand, touched my mouth. So kind of an Isaiah moment here, except not with clo- a coal from uh, a, a burning coal from the fire, which was grabbed by an angel. Uh, but it says that the Lord reached out, touched his mouth and told me, I've now filled your mouth with my words. See, I've, I have pointed you today over the nations and kingdoms, uproot and tear down to destroy and to mol- demolish and to build and to plant. So you get this picture of not just Jeremiah's call, but also what he's going to be speaking and preaching to God's people to just to uproot and tear down, to destroy and demolish, and then to build and to plant. Um, and then we jump into chapter two, which is where I, I, Israel is accused of apostasy. If you don't know what that word means, uh, it's just this idea of abandonment of religion and faithfulness to God. Um, and it's when Israel is accused of rebelling against God, abandoning God, and then it's followed it's followed by the consequences of that rebellion. So in chapter 22, we're going to see this tension play out. Um, the challenge is that uh, at the end, you'll see towards the end of the, the, this week's reading, you'll see that the challenge here is that you can't wash yourself clean enough to become clean uh, apart from the work of the Holy Spirit, apart from the work of God to redeem and, and clean his people. Um, and they, in essence, we, we're left as we read this week with that rebuke, that you cannot clean yourself well enough to be clean before me. Uh, And it says this in chapter two, verses five through eight. We'll read all the way to verse 22, I believe. Um, This says, this is what the Lord says. And I I just thought this passage was pretty poignant and pretty interesting to read. Um, And as I was reading, it kind of stood out to me, which is why I'm reading it today. It says, this is what the Lord says. What fault did your fathers find in me that they went so far from me? followed worthless idols and became worthless, worthless themselves. Just that question that God asked, I think is, is really, is really challenging to consider. Um, it's just like, well, where did I go wrong? Where, where can you show me where I, where I've been wrong? And, and it reminds me some of the Job conversations where Job is like, uh, God, I'm righteous. What happened? Like, and that's not really how he says it, but it's this tension of these questions and these questions being asked. Um, and, and then God continues on in Jeremiah two, it says this, they stopped asking, where is the Lord who brought us from the land of Egypt, who led us through the wilderness, through a land of deserts and ravines, through a land of drought and darkness, a land no one traveled through and where no one lived. And then he says, I brought you to a fertile land to eat its fruit and bounty. But after you entered, you defiled my land. You made my inheritance detestable. The priests quit asking, where is the Lord? The experts in law no longer knew me. And the rulers rebelled against me. The prophets prophesied Baal and followed useless idols. And so there's this, this not just accusation of apostasy, but it's literally like, where did it start? What happened? Why did you stop seeking me? Why did you stop looking to me? Uh, and as we get into the book of Jeremiah, you'll see the continued, um, not just accusation, but the continued reality of which where Jeremiah will call out God's people. This is where you've rebelled. This is where you stopped calling out to me. Uh, but we end Jeremiah on kind of a bummer of a note because there's the challenge of of rebelling and where were you and why'd you stop asking questions? So but that's mean, where it ends. In fairness, you could read any passage of Jeremiah and when you're done, it'll probably end on a bummer note because that's just kind of that's just kind of the book of Jeremiah for the most part. Uh, but yeah, before we wrap up today, we have a couple more segments for you. Starting off with, uh, we haven't done this one in a, quite a while. Quite a while. Ranking some kings. Okay, so I think the tiers that these kings go into is going to be pretty non-controversial. For sure, for two of them. One of them will be a kind of an interesting discussion. Uh, but let's start with Hezekiah. Uh, I mean, he's great. Right. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Hundred yeah. percent. So top tier, top tier king, S tier king of Judah. The question would be: Is do we rate him higher or lower than David? Is the that is the operative question? I've been wrestling with this all week as I've been reading and wrapping mm-hmm. up the, the story of Hezekiah. Um, oh man, it's a hard one. I mean, we are told that there's none that were there were none like him before. I know that's what that that's what for me like he has to be above David then like 
that's a big deal. That's a line there. I mean, Hezekiah has his failures, but they are, um, I would say his failures are in the one sense of failing to raise up his son, but that's the same failure that David oh, has. Oh, 100%. Uh, and, and, and it's Hezekiah, almost the same failure of every king. <laughs> yeah, that's true. Uh, yeah, because Josiah's sons are no bueno either. It's it's funny because the good kings, they usually have like good sons, but like the great kings, all of their have sons. Crap sons. Yeah, all of their sons suck after them. Um, I mean, and, and, and Hezekiah, you know, he never... Uh, commits adultery with one of his loyal servants' wives and has him killed. Oh, so there is there is that. It's forever the stain in David's legacy. I am I am fine with. And to be clear, I'm like we're kind of crapping on David right now. Like David's great. Like David is hundred uh, percent up to this point. He's the standard. Yeah, I would say I think I agree. I think Hezekiah is a notch above David. Yes. Not in a completely different like he's so much better. No, but I think he's a I think he's a little bit better. It's, than it's David. like the one A one B thing. Sure, yeah, um, is what it was where we put him. But because like in that, for me, it was that line that sealed it. Like I'm like, oh yeah, but it's David. Like mm-hmm. everyone's back to the line of David. But no, it's like there was no one better than him before him. Like it was like, man. And in fairness to that's David. That's a big statement. In fairness to David, the triumphs of Hezekiah are not as high as the triumphs True. of David, which is a whole other thing. But yeah. Okay. So yeah, great king. We'll rank him, we'll rank him slightly above David. Yes. Well, listeners, to be clear, slightly above yeah. is what we're talking this about. This is not here. a large gap. This is a very small gap. All right. King number two, Manasseh. This is the one I think is actually controversial for what tier he goes in. Um, because I I this is if you've been following the podcast for a while, listeners, you will realize that this is a moment of self-reflection for me. I think be, Man- hang on a second. To be clear, Manasseh was the the poster child for the worst. The worst. From you. Yep. You would always say he's the worst. Oh, he, he's not Manasseh. Oh, the worst. It's true. I think Manasseh belongs at the very bottom of the bad king category. Whoa. I, I think. I you th- like elevated him out of a tier entirely. I, I think. I think the fact that he repents at the end of his life. And it's not just like with Ahab, we see that repentance that, mm. that God sees as well. Um, but it's it's not just in his heart; it is with his actions. Yeah, and and Manasseh actually goes, and he builds an altar of the Lord. Uh, he makes offerings on it. He tells the people of Judah, "No, we need to serve the God of Israel." Um, and even the high places, which you know, at times the high places are an act of rebellion because they're not worshiping at the temple, but they're still worshiping Yahweh. Mm-hmm. And then at times the high places are just straight up, hey, let's kill our kids and, and sacrifice them to, to demons or what or to false gods. Um, the fact that he has a moment of repentance and he tries to turn things around, I think elevates him out of the worst. Um, I think he still. Wow. I think he still has to be bad. Oh, yeah. Because he's, he's bad. He's so bad that God is like, yeah, we're done with the mercy thing. Jerusalem's going to be destroyed for sure. Um, and 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 he 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 committed child sacrifice, which is you know <laughs> yeah. that's like the ultimate. Hey, don't kill your kids. That's like one of God's main rules that he keeps telling the king. So I, I don't think he makes it out of bad at all. And I think he still belongs towards the bottom because you can't you can't erase the vast majority of 100%. his reign and legacy. But I do think he he inches out of the worst. It sounds like you agree the way you're nodding. Dodged a bullet. Oh, percent. And that was the, it's funny because, and it wasn't like, I read that part of, of Second Chronicles on purpose. Uh, was, yeah, because I wanted, I wanted to, I mean, we've talked about it all the time. We've we've highlighted different kings because of the the redemptive part of their story, the repentance side of their story, which changed some of the conversation. Um, I, I even uh, even my friend Nate, he was he was uh, in disagreement with my ranking of Solomon back in the day. And I, I, Nate and I, I kind of already shouted out Nate in the conversation. He's really excited about Josiah, and he wants to know where we rank Josiah. Um, and sadly, I won't be here when we rank Josiah because I'm on vacation, and we've got some guest speakers coming Ooh. for the podcast. I don't know if you know that. Um, but I won't be here when Josiah is dead. Um, and so I, I will anticipate and on the following podcast sure. afterwards, I'll come back and rank myself. But I say that because all that to say, like, I do agree. I think Manasseh is a bat. He, he's the bottom of the bat barrel. Um, and if it wasn't for that redemption, if it wasn't for that repentance, he would be the bottom and, of the worst barrel. <laughs> absolutely. But the sincere, like the sincerity of yeah. it, right? The, the action, the tearing down the things that he built, the repentance he offered, the sacrifices he made. And then and then even as much as it was on the high places, right? That the people still worshiped God or they still worshiped on the high places, but only to the Lord their God. I think those are significant things that show 
um, an elevation, so to speak, from the worst to the bad kings. Yeah. So. Uh, and then finally, Ammon, his son, uh, worst. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, cool. Easy, easy peasy That there. was an easy one. Basically, it's like, hey, let me do all of the crappy things my dad did with none of the repentance. Yep. And his one saving grace is that he had the courtesy to die two years into his reign, <laughs> so he couldn't do too much damage. Good riddance. Ammon. All right. Well, let's talk about what we learned today. Uh, so for me, I just think about that passage in Isaiah where it talks about the the wrath of God being a refinement. Uh, and I think sometimes we, and I, I've hit this a couple times this year, I think a lot of times we have a tendency to view pain as necessarily bad instead of asking ourselves, what could God be doing in my life through this pain? Um, and so the the message of Isaiah of, hey, like, this is going to be an incredibly painful thing. Jerusalem is going to fall. There will be an exile. Um, but God is using that to refine his people, Israel. And we see when they come back, um, there is never a moment in Israel's history where they are more dedicated to the worship of Yahweh alone than when they return from the exile. Like we don't hear anything else about idols after Mm -hmm. that. Like they've, they've clearly given it up. Uh, and so even in the midst of difficult times of difficult trials of, of really painful experiences, I think it's worth asking ourselves, what could God be doing in my life? How is God refining me through this pain? Yeah, that's good. It's a very challenging thought, but it's good. Um, it's one that we should all hold on to. Uh, mine, mine is a little bit, uh, comes from Jeremiah, his call. Uh, I, I remember as a youth reading this and like, oh man, I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to be an incredible mouthpiece for God, whatever. Uh, but I, I really did appreciate the call that God gave Jeremiah, but it was, and it's something I even referenced already, but the idea of don't be afraid of anyone for I will be with you to rescue you. This is the Lord's declaration. Um, and then the very clear calling that God gave Jeremiah, the idea of uproot and tear down, destroy and demolish and to build in the plant. And and just the, the the obedience of Jeremiah to do what God asked him to do, um, I, I'm sure he had some kind of uh, understanding of the rebuke and the rebellion or the 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 tension and the fight he's going to get back. The um, and it's still his willingness to go and do it. And and even as we read through Jeremiah to realize like he's called a weeping prophet for a reason because he was so heartbroken for his people that he was oftentimes cr- like weeping and, and, and lamenting because he also wrote Lamentations. So we'll read that again coming up as well. Um, but he, he really did like care deeply for God's people, his own people. Uh, and he, he cried over his people because they wouldn't listen. And um, the simple fact that he had the the the, the animosity, he had the the fight back um, for him doing what God called him to do, and, and was told. I think it was really thought provoking and challenging to consider, like, am I willing to say yes no matter the outcome or no matter the opposition? Um, and Jeremiah's willingness to be obedient um, and the confidence, and the other side of it too. Like, first off, you're going to face opposition, but then also it's going to be this t- tension of like, I will be with you and rescue you. That's enough. Um, and I think there's times where we think that the things going back to what you said, like the pain we navigate, do we really believe God's enough? So finding the confidence in the fact that God has called me and that he is good enough uh, to be able to secure, give us security and trust and confidence, um, I think are really big. And so as we navigate our own lives, as I navigate my own life, like where am I trusting that God's enough versus not enough, no matter what what may come in the future? Well, there you go. Well, that wraps it up for this week's episode of Let's Read the Bible. As a reminder, uh, we are a podcast of The Grove Church, but we're not the only resource of The Grove Church. You can find our other resources on our website, grove.church, under the media tab. And if this podcast has been a blessing to you and you would like to contribute financially to the ministry that The Grove Church does, you can also do that on our website. There's a give button in the upper right-hand corner. And tune in, yeah, next week, some guest hosts for the first time ever. Uh, we had a we, we had, had your brother come on. Yeah, Brett came but on. Both with of me us and were you. here. Yeah. This is the first podcast, first two podcasts that I'm not going to be. Me a part and Aaron of. were trying to figure out. Okay, how do we record four podcasts in like five days to make this work? And then we finally just realized, you know what? Let's just get some. We've got else some to incredible host. people uh, that are going to be an incredible resource and voice into the podcast, which I'm really excited about. Yep. Um, I I jokingly said to one of them, you're gonna, I hear you're going to elevate the podcast in the next couple of weeks. Um, not because of any kind of uh, audio technical ability, but because of knowledge and insight. So uh, I think it's going to be a really fun episode. I'm going to miss being a part of it for a couple of weeks, but uh, I'll be back after vacation and we'll have a good time. Yeah. Well, with all that being said, thank Josiah you all. Josiah is one of the best kings, by the way. Oh, yeah, Josiah is awesome. Uh, yeah. If not the best king. Spoilers, he's great. He's going to be in the great category. Uh, thank you all <laughs> so much for listening.